Okay, so we're here for another episode of Regenerative Landscapes. And this time we have something new going on. So it's not just myself and Dan and Kevin Yu. Now we have Kevin E. So we'll, we'll differentiate between them with the Kevin E and the Kevin Y so that we can kind of tell the difference. But um, we're going to be talking about edible scaping and more specifically um, edible scaping with some natives and also utilizing some more permaculture type methods with our edible scaping. So first off, I would just like uh, to introduce Kevin E. I, we know him from past dealings with various projects and companies and whatnot. But uh, my understanding is you are currently working with a community garden outfit called Sprouts. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the everyday job is um, a landscape architecture consultant within BizTech Consulting and helping run their landscape architecture department there and then have a um, bit of a side gig helping a friend who's doing exactly that community garden consulting. Uh, and I'm just an advisor for her as to help communities, individuals set up their uh, either market gardens, community gardens, uh, just some neighborhood cooperative gardens and stuff like that. So. Awesome. Um, and yes, yeah, so tell us about your your background. I believe you've got a bachelor degree in landscape and urbanism and a master's degree in landscape architecture. That's right. It's making me nervous, whatever you're reading off of, if that's the website or something. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's it. Yeah, master's degree in landscape architecture from, from U of M. And uh, I'm an associate member right now with the um, Alberta Association of Landscape Architects, hopefully get my full membership and, and get my stamp that I've worked hard for in uh, in 2021. But as the world changes every week or every month, I won't hold my breath on too many things these days. Well, I guess you don't know whether people will have to get recertified or what kinds of regulations change or, yeah, I don't know. But but in the meantime, hey, you're pretty edumacated. Or something like that. I know a little <laughs> bit about a little bit. We'll put it that way. Yeah, well, that's that's probably more than I know. So that's good. <laughs> and um, Manitoba, were you born, raised in Manitoba? How did the Manitoba thing happen? No, born and raised here. And um, my brother, he's two years older, and he moved out to Winnipeg after high school. Uh, and he registered in the environmental design program there. Um, and then I was just looking for a way out of my parents' basement and uh, was <laughs> watching my brother and some of the work that he was doing in that in that bachelor's degree. and. And had the opportunity to move in with him in his house in Winnipeg. So, um, yeah, I was a student there for a long time, fell in love with the prairies, did a master's degree at the U of M too. And, and yeah, it's, I have a, a lot, I have a soft spot for the, the tall grass prairie and the people that come from the tall grass prairie ecozone, that's for sure. It's uh, people of Manitoba treated me really well. So always excited when I get to go back. Nice. Yeah, we're very fortunate in Canada and even in Alberta to have so many different ecosystems present in a, a very diverse kind of area. So what made you, I guess, what was the, the aha moment or the, the pinnacle thing that happened in your life that decided, got you to decide to, uh, to get into the, the landscape, the plant, the environmental, this whole field? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it, it honestly traces all the way back to uh, my parents had a really small cabin on Lake Isle. So just about uh, 15 minutes north of, of Wobman Lake. Um, 
west of Edmonton here and I uh, grew up out there and always just being outside like we didn't have um, you know we had power and radio but we didn't have television or anything like that and I spent my childhood out there all my summers out there to kind of stay out of trouble so I'm always in the bush playing building forts you know playing playing in the bush playing on the lake always just being in nature you know getting those little beaked hazelnut prickles in my fingers because I didn't understand what that shrub was back in the day and uh, <laughs> Yeah, so so growing up out there, I think just being in nature all the time, uh, always had an affinity for it. And then if anyone remembers that, what was that Al Gore documentary, that like scare piece, uh, Inconvenient Truth, I think. <laughs> I watched that in, uh, I think, I think that was like right out of high school. I watched that documentary and just got absolutely freaked out and then just kind of made a commitment to myself to pursue a profession in some ways that could work with nature and work with ecosystems to try to, you know, do my part. So in very roundabout way, that's, that's how I got to this, uh, to this road here. Wow. Very cool. It's funny actually, because, um, growing up, you would have been very close to where we live now. (laughs) No kidding. Yeah, definitely. But we didn't know each other, right? So, yeah. uh, very cool. Anyway, I think what I'll do is I'll start with edible scaping. It's kind of a combination of edibles and landscaping, obviously, but a lot of people may have heard the term and, and be only vaguely familiar with it, not sure what it totally encompasses. On a general scale, it's utilizing food plants within a landscape in such a way that it is both functional and appealing. And then from there, Uh, You can go in multiple directions. There's no hard, fast rules. But in our case, we're going to lean towards more of a a native and permaculture um, spin on it. And so permaculture takes edible scaping to a, a whole new level because now you're mimicking observed natural ecosystems in a managed setting on a specific piece of land. And you can utilize rewilding, biodiversity, food forests, uh, naturescaping, all kinds of other terms and techniques, which could be whole podcasts in themselves, either on their own or in combination to provide uh, for both yourself and other people, as well as for nature um, in a sustainable way. I don't know if anybody has anything to add to that as far as what they feel the edible scaping and permaculture is to them. I'll just send a little plug uh, to Verge Permaculture. I, uh, I didn't really know what permaculture was. Um, you know, I always thought it was just just in the in the gardening, like vegetable gardening world for the longest time. And then um, uh, I took a PDC with Verge Permaculture. So there's some local guys who, um, guys and gals who run an excellent cold climate permaculture course and i think in my opinion they're some of the best cold climate permaculturalists uh out there so i took uh i spent a good amount of money on their course and and it's some of the best money that i've ever spent um like even in comparison to the education i had at u of m like taking the permaculture design course from verge from robin dakota and and michelle and their team is just absolutely eye-opening and it really did a lot for my my soul and my brain uh that was really panicked during this you know the covid times the lockdown times and um and, so you, you know, did this all recently? Yeah, I, I did the course, the last in-person course in October, uh, at the end of October last year. Wow, before it got um, shut down. Wow, that's, exactly. that's pretty yeah. lucky and amazing there. Yeah, I was grateful that my boss here at Invistec, he let me, um, he let me go down there to, to train. And, um, and it was truly eye-opening. Like, and, it, and it really focused me on the solutions rather than I was really fixated on the problems. You know, And I'm sure mm-hmm. a lot of us are when we're talking about, you know, how many harvests we have left, our topsoil degradation, our 
our seed vulnerability and our plant vulnerability and the climate changing and uh, what the ecosystems are doing. And, and I was really, you know, in a troubled mental spot for a while. And then you, you do that PDC and it's all about solutions. And it's all about like working with nature to yeah. find these solutions. And, and it really uh, calmed, calmed my mind down and, and now has helped me focus on some of these other, other solutions. So just wanted to plug Verge's PDC if anyone. Because, yeah, there's a lot of free and not free courses and schools and everything out there that offer a lot of different horticultural programs, but they're not all the same. It's kind of a buyer beware. Um, definitely, if you can get referrals from, from people like Kevin E here, that goes a long way. And definitely research what your specific interests are and what you're looking for. But yeah, yeah definitely yeah. keep learning. Education is, there's, nev- there's never a reason not to go on with your education. That's very cool. So I just want to throw out there, what are each of your favorite food plants or plant foods? And don't and don't even worry about whether it's native or not. Who would like to start? Maybe Dan, because I haven't heard him say anything. Yeah, I kind of have two. I think one kind of more recently as, and by recently, I mean like in the last five years, uh, that I've kind of really enjoyed and like propagating and just seeing is a giant hyssop. Mm-hmm. Love it. Because it smells nice. It's got all the benefits of uh, providing uh, food for pollinators. Like we always get uh, a whole bunch of bees coming in once, you know, they start getting uh, blooming and they got those really nice, like purple, bluish uh, flowers. So they just always look pretty. So I like those. Um, And then like as a and like I haven't really used them as food. Like, I mean, I've kind of nibbled on the leaves because like they're they taste like uh, licorice, black licorice. For those who like licorice, wow, it's amazing. And for salads and things too, it's just a nice flavor changer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other kind of maybe not so native one would be a rhubarb. Mm-hmm. Whether it's, you know, raw, just kind of eating, eating it as is <laughs> out in the wild. Like, I mean, I wouldn't eat too much because, I mean, it's pretty bitter. Uh, but just even using it for, you know, making rhubarb-related food items you know pies and jams jellies and all that kind of stuff yeah those are kind of hungry (laughs) what's edible on the giant hyssop is it the leaves is it the the flowers or what uh all of it all of it um the the leaves and the flowers are the best parts but all of it is technically edible Cool. and you can have it fresh or dried and use it for actually a lot of different things and it's got medicinal uses as well which i won't get into because that's again a whole other episode but but yeah we're really good at getting off in tangents because there's so much that so many directions you can go so much you can talk about but anyway so kevin you what are a couple of your favorite food plants or plant foods i would go for spaghetti squash spaghetti squash squash yeah i can eat that yeah i can eat that all day long but surprisingly that's the only squash that i like (laughs) <laughs> oh, out of all the squashes, there's just one. Yeah, just that one. <laughs> I'll I'll that one. It same with me good. though. Like, like I'm like that too. I only like spaghetti squash. I don't like many other kinds. Like that's kind of yeah, my go-to one. Well, I'll just have. To, I'll make a note of planting more spaghetti squash for you guys and less of the other ones this year. Then. <laughs> yeah, I guess that will be our company symbol in the future. Squash. <laughs> squ- the spaghetti squash. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and the kid agrees. She's like, I'm having squash too. Awesome. <laughs> she likes squash. She likes spaghetti squash too. She can eat the whole thing. 
That's actually really cool we because a lot of younger kids, <laughs> yeah, a lot of younger kids, they um, getting them to eat certain veggies is a tough thing. So if you can expose them to that early and get them on it, awesome. Yeah, my uh, yeah. Sinjin used to, he had a thing, believe it or not, chickpeas. He'd eat chickpeas like you wouldn't believe. And a lot of kids are like, eh, those are gross. They taste, eh, whatever. But yeah, it's just starting them young, training them, just like your dogs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another thing I want to mention is it's actually invasive. It's shepherd's purse. True. Oh, yeah. And that the will bring Capsella me. Capsella pastoris. I guess Ooh. that's the scientific Good for name. you. You got your Latin. No. No, I have uh, the Google in front of me. That's oh, don't tell people you're cheating. <laughs> you're going to say, yes, cut, I'm really that smart. <laughs> I'll cut this part out. <laughs> Anyways. Um, no, that's awesome. Because that's yeah, invasive. But yeah, people in China, they actually plant those. Mm-hmm. And they cultivate those and they eat those. I've tried the invasive ones here. It doesn't taste as good. I think it might be the climate because it's once it gets too cold, the leaf doesn't grow that big. It's yeah. just kind of dry and tough. Well, they get yeah, tough. they're I- a tougher plant, yeah. But if you yeah. if you took the ones earlier in the spring before they got the summer heat, they might be better or whatever. But I know, um, yeah, like I've had lots of uh, workshops where we're, we're eating invasive, which again is another podcast but um they've got a lot of value for treating women's complaints and things like that uh as well as in prepared right or picked in the right stage they could be a, a good edible but because they're more invasive here uh you don't want to go willy-nilly planting them just use the ones that are already out there but still have value um so kevin e how about you what would your or one of your favorite food plants or plant foods be yeah, mine is anytime there's uh, anytime there's raspberries anywhere. I'm just a bear in a forest, just foraging like crazy. So it's uh, I like seeing the wild raspberries, but they just they just uh, don't have enough volume or size for me. So I like the uh, the back alley roaming in some of the mature neighborhoods in Edmonton and just uh, snacking off some. It's it's interesting that you bring this up. So with the natives, so I realize yes, the commercial varieties they're bigger. But do you realize a lot of the constituents, medicinal properties, um, even the vitamins and minerals are quite often higher in native or wild varieties? So if you can suck it up and tolerate picking more of them, they're probably better (laughs) for you than the commercial ones. That's good to know. Maybe I'll spend more time in the forest than I do in the back alleys then. Or like um, basically what one thing I'm saying with this podcast is although we're here to to focus on natives, there's nothing wrong with incorporating non-natives into your edible landscape. Just make sure you're putting some thought as to how and when and why you're doing it because some of these things can become invasive and take off on you or they may be uh, not hardy enough to survive in our climate versus our wild counterparts here will uh, go through, I don't know, minus 30 and drought and rain and you know whatever we got going on but yeah um definitely there's nothing wrong with having the two types working together but you just have to plan what you're what you're doing and how you're doing it very cool um this brings me to of course there are kind of what i was just getting at with kevin e there are a lot of uh native and cold hardy substitutes for a number of traditional type plants or exotic plants or tropical plants that we might be familiar with and think, well, this is where, you know, like, so for lemon example, the flavor lemon, a lot of people, it's like uh, out here, you either have a potted citrus that you're going to be putting out in the summer and bringing in in the winter, 
or you're like, that's it. I don't get to have my lemon. Uh, but that's not true. We have a lot of uh, native species that have those same flavors, not the same plant, but they will mimic those same flavors. So sumac, have you guys heard of that? We've got some different kinds of sumac. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a very tangy, lemony flavor to it, and it's definitely hardy enough to live all over Alberta. Okay. Um, wild sorrel has an, a nice uh, lemony tang to it as well. Um, so yeah, you can, I, I kind of suggest to people to opt for the natives when you can. And then if there isn't a choice or a flavor or whatever it is that you're looking for, then fine, go ahead and go get your non-native. Um, as long as, like I say, it doesn't have the invasive properties or you know how to take care of it if it's a little frost tender. But yeah, so it just requires some planning. There's lots of native edibles out there and safer non-native, I call them safer non-natives, meaning they're, you know, once they are harvested, they're not going to set seed. They're not going to spread rampantly. They're not on our invasive species list. Like definitely check in your county or your city, wherever you live for that. And even if you're getting non-natives, try to choose hardier varieties that are less prone to disease, early maturing varieties. Uh, try to do complete harvesting so you're not leaving seed and dead plant material to repopulate or spread pests or attract disease, that kind of thing. So those are just things to think about. What part of the sumac um, gives it that flavor? Well, it depends. Uh, well, they're, they're all utilized the same. So the, the uh, Indian one gets imported and because it's so large, that's usually what you're going to find in the stores. But our, um, there's a, it's a sweet sumac, our staghorn sumac actually occurs farther east. It'll grow here just fine, but it's a Canadian native, not necessarily an Alberta native. Anyway, those ones, they've got these red clusters of, of flower heads on them, and that's where the flavor comes from. But you can use them just like the, the, the East Indian types. It's just that they're not going to be as large. So you're not necessarily getting the volume in one go, but um, considering it's more of a considered a condiment crop, like you're not just going to sit there and eat your face off with sumac. So I don't think the the volume thing, unless you're going commercial, should be a big deterrent for people anyway. Right on. Well, that's uh, I underuse sumac in my planting plans, and now I'm going to stop doing that because that's I had no idea that it was um, inedible. That's fantastic. Yeah, and they have other values, but like I've got. Um, both staghorn and sweet in my repertoire of stuff that I grow. And I'm finding that the, the sweet is good in certain situations, but it does need lots of airflow or it does get um, white fly or, or aphids, that kind of thing, like when it gets high humidity. But if you, outdoors, that's highly unlikely to happen around here. <laughs> it's just gr- when you're growing it in a greenhouse situation, it's a little trickier than the staghorn. But anyway... Yeah. So another thing you have to consider is the, um, to be realistic and reasonable, a lot of people, it's a sp- space is a consideration, right? So some people may think, oh, I can't even do anything because all I've got are some containers on my deck or, you know, I live in an apartment or something. Well, yes, you can have a bigger impact with more space, but there's nothing to say you can't go vertical. You can definitely container garden. There's a lot of things you can do. So you can even, you can still supplement 
what your your regular diet is so you don't have to go get everything from the store. You might want to just do some herbs or um, some edible flowers or whatever, right? So there's some something that everybody can do out there for sure. On the other scale, farmers that do their, their you know, the big crops, the grain crops, that kind of thing, they can do a certain amount of edible scaping, permaculture type of stuff that will actually increase their yields, improve their soil quality, prevent erosion, bring back biodiversity, the pollinators, all this kind of stuff, which in the long run, even if they may be missing a swath out of their grain crop, overall, it's actually going to save them money or increase their income because of the uh, the added value that it has. So some of these techniques would be putting in a, like a prairie swath. I, Kevin E., you may have heard of this kind of stuff where they put in a mixed planting of usually lower crop things that could be mowed if necessary or harvested by traditional farm equipment, but a wide variety of grasses, flowers, that kind of thing. And then it's put in between the crops. And then that way, like I say, it's helping prevent the erosion. It acts as a snow catch, brings more pollinators to your crops as well as the the natives, um, all that kind of thing, which I think is a really cool idea. It's just getting the farmers on board with it now because, of course, everybody's so used to monoculture, right? Definitely. Yeah. I always found it's always difficult to like outside of, um, you know, people with kind of that environmental lens, it's always difficult to quantify ecosystem services. It's always difficult to, to put that dollar value on, on the ecosystem services. So, you know, when you're, when you're asking a farmer to give up X amount of square meters of yieldable area for their cash crop, it's, it's difficult to say, well, if you, you know, if you give us hundred square meters so that we can put in some of these um, plant guilds that have all of these benefits, like you mentioned, it's, it's difficult for them to see how that relates to the financial benefit when all they're seeing is the, the square area that they had, that they were able to plant and, and sell for grain crops now they don't have that but i think the tide's starting to turn in that which is really good and i think more education and, and just more awareness like you all are presenting right now i think is only going to benefit it because i think once the financial argument uh, can really be made for ecosystem services especially here in alberta where that's just starting to become part of you know farmers lexicons and uh, that's where i think it's going to start to take off and, and really thrive yeah cool um which brings me to my next point which kind of reiterates some of what we were just talking about so adding edible permaculture plants to your landscape can have a number of positive effects some of them which i've mentioned um can each of you guys name a positive effect that you can think of off top of your head this time i'll start with kevin e i think yeah i always look at uh, berry bushes as that uh, the root stabilizers like not only do I love plucking the fruit off of, you know, blackberries, raspberries, Saskatoons, but if you're designing any, um, you know, swales for water harvesting, for example, like when you're, when you're placing your mounds, uh, building your mounds and doing your earthworks, like placing those edible berry bushes right on those mounds to really hold that earth in and stop the erosion is really, um, is really key. And it just is so fantastic that I can also just gorge myself on berries while I'm also, you know, <laughs> multi-purposeful. Yes. Yeah. Well, while, while protecting from erosion. So I, I look at the, all of those berry shrubs, those kind of dense, really fibrous root system berry shrubs is just absolute erosion mats and just erosion specialists. So, um, yeah, that's what came to mind for me. Awesome. How about uh, Kevin Y? To me, nothing is more satisfying than pulling out a huge, giant taproot. So, dandelion? Yeah, this is actually, it's, it's not to be laughed at, even though 
it's it's not a native it has value and so do plants like yeah. it that have the, those deep tap roots because they bring up a lot of nutrients yeah. they store the water all that kind of stuff right yeah all those tap root they uh you that the plant use the tap root to store energy right so mm-hmm. um i don't know i just always have a thing about the dandelion when i pull them out i always try to uh, measure the root to see how deep they are and also <laughs> you know you can use dandelion root to make um teas and all those stuff and also um like any tap root radish carrots yeah yeah and even i mean i know some of them might not be considered edible per se, but some of the really deep reaching tap roots, like some of our vetches and stuff, like it's amazing how far down some of them can go. I've heard stories. I haven't seen any personally because I'm not digging that far, but some people have said, you know, 10 meters deep, some of these plants can reach down. They, like I say, they, they're bringing up the nutrients, they're holding water, stopping erosion. And they're also, some of them are providing, uh, they're nitrogen fixers too, which, uh, puts back into the soil. So Dan, how about you? Something that can have a positive effect on the permaculture landscape. Uh, yeah, for me, yeah, I don't know what's the right term for it. Cause I wouldn't say like, I mean, aesthetics is kind of part of it uh, where I'm, I, I kind of just. Be, be aesthetically pleasing is important for people, especially more so probably in urban areas because there's bylaws and things you have to abide by as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, what I'm trying to <laughs> trying to come up with the right words for it but it's almost just seeing how um how things are kind of interact like when i say things like you know insects pollinators and some wildlife i mean rabbits sometimes it's hit and miss depending on how i feel that day uh, <laughs> but uh just seeing how all these different uh how this different wildlife interacts with just like in your front yard so like i was saying with the giant hyssop just seeing you know this big clump of you know these tall purple flowers and then just seeing a whole bunch of bees just buzzing around there um you know collecting pollen and stuff i think it's just mm-hmm. really cool and then just seeing all this other wildlife just you know kind of coming in for let's say like a little pit stop or whatever just kind of hanging around or whatever and then and then just and then just uh heading out again and then maybe coming back the next day or whenever mm-hmm. but just being able to see the kind of that whole process happen i think is yeah just, it's like, it's, really like, cool. it's, so, like and it's kind of the aesthetics of it just looking at all how it's all kind of brought together but then also seeing how everything's interacting as well yeah, again, it's, i don't it's know what the right of, word for that is but well the best i can come up with is reaping the visual rewards of the regenerative aspect of this so then you can start to see how everything's connected how the web goes together what you can get out of it and still share with all the rest of the the wildlife and the other plant life and everything else right because we're only one part of it if we just learn to share (laughs) people don't like to but if we learn to share and play nice it can actually work out a lot better yeah so very cool yeah so all the all these um kinds of things uh, like I mentioned, increase biodiversity. They can reduce your workload over time because initially, yes, there's you're never going to get away from all the work. There's going to be some work when you're gardening or landscaping or whatever. But over time, if you're doing more of a permaculture method, your weeding gets reduced. You're not replanting all the time. You can spend more time eating and enjoying what you've been putting in. The soil improvement possibly becoming regenerative to the point where you can continually harvest your food without depleting it. Um, In smaller situations, that might not be possible, so you might have to add into it. That's kind of our aim to get as close to that as possible. Uh, The aesthetics, like Dan mentioned, and overall environmental stability so that your 
your whole system over time becomes more balanced. And when it becomes more balanced, um, it becomes self-perpetuating. And there's, there's, like I say, less effort involved, uh, more, everything just starts to snowball more biodiversity and begets more biodiversity and so on and so on. So yeah, so it definitely a lot of positive uh, benefits when you're planning your edible scape. And I'm sure Kevin E has done a lot of this kind of stuff. It's still really important to consider purpose instead of just going, I like this plant. I'm going to put it here or I'm going to get a whole bunch of these because they were cheap and on sale or something. Um, try, try to be a little more purposeful when you're planning because you're only going to have so much room and so much labor available, so much time, all these things. Why don't you make it count? Think of how many are you providing for? Like how many people are you planning on feeding? What kinds of things do you and they like to eat? I mean, if you can't stand broccoli, why would you plant it? How much can you comfortably look after? As I said, it does become less work over time, but initially there's going to be some work. If you can't keep a large plot weeded, well, maybe you need to make a smaller one initially until you can get the hang of it. Assess your fixed features. Some things maybe. If you've got the money or the time or, or both, you, maybe you can rip out an established tree or smash down a building or change the terrain or something. The way we look at it is try to work with the landscape with what you've been given to either incorporate it or, do, you know, do as little disturbance as possible and work it into your your landscape. You might want to consider, uh, Dan was mentioning this in a positive way, but there's also the downside, you know, considering wildlife. It's really cool to be watching the wildlife come in. You might want to provide suitable habitats for them. The downside is maybe sometimes they're going to be eating some of your food that you'd like. So are you going to plant enough to share with them? Are you going to section certain areas of your garden off so that this is for us humans only and then over there is for you animals or something? Or are you going to try to grow some plants that wildlife don't really get into and don't like to eat? So these are all things to think about, right? Um, what are some things, Kevin E., that you come across that people, maybe they don't have the foresight to th- see or that they're not thinking of when they're thinking of putting in a, a garden or an edible scape, you think they should probably be more aware of or, or be made to think through? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I say, I mean, one of the, one of the sins I would say that we see, especially in urban development, landscape development, uh, or landscaping rather in urban development is like just people putting a, a tree or a shrub that is way too big for the space and, and, you know, not understanding that when that comes from, a nursery, even like really large, large nursery stock is a, is a baby. And uh, so we've seen some uh, native, very mature Saskatoons that are just absolutely overwhelm a space and, and then end up getting taken down because they just weren't sighted properly to begin with. But uh, I think you mentioned it, like one of the, especially understanding what trees you have, if you're going to be putting a garden in, let's say a residential yard where you have some existing trees and, and especially, you know, with spruce trees, we, we see a lot of really beautiful spruce trees in our mature canopy in the city of Edmonton here. And, and those can just be, you know, if you're, if you're planting a garden beside a mature spruce tree, you are basically giving all of your hard-earned water that you're going to give to your garden and you're just giving it to the, to that spruce tree and to all of its shallow root systems. But, but in the same breath, if you are planning, planting a garden, there's no spruce tree there and you want to plant a garden with a spruce tree. Um, if you, you know, if you, if you plant the tree with the garden, then they can kind of evolve together and, and have a more symbiotic relationship and how they compete for water. But if you're putting a, 
a garden next to an existing mature established spruce tree it's just going to suck you dry and uh, and make for a really uh, arduous task of getting your garden established. So understanding, like you said, Don, understanding your context of, of what you have around you and, and maybe some nuances of, you know, what trees exist um, and, and definitely otherwise just microclimates. Like it's amazing how we can get from a zone two, sometimes zone three to a zone four on the south side of, of buildings uh, in the city of Edmonton here. So so getting an understanding of microclimates and, and how the sun kind of passes your passes through your, your yard or your neighborhood, we can actually grow some really spectacular things if we capitalize off the microclimates. Yeah, that's actually a really good point to um, study your particular landscape before you dig in and start planting, because even in a yard, you could have multiple little climates and ecosystems that you might not have been aware of when you first moved in. I know around our place, depending on whether it's the north side of the house or the south side, or whether it's in the shade or in the sun, vastly, vastly different. Like we're very fortunate here. We have almost all of the desired landscape ecosystems on the one property, but we still have to plant the right things in the right part of the property. (laughs) Yeah. And definitely considering your height spread, light, water, soil requirements of each of your species that you're thinking of and deciding if they will work um, in the space that you're wanting to put them. Or maybe is there a substitution, something else, or can you manipulate that space in some way to make it suitable for that plant? Again, deciding how much effort, time, money you want to put into this. I personally like, I'm lazy, so I want to do as little work as possible, which means I will assess the landscape and do what's working for that landscape rather than start carving into it and changing and ripping stuff out and building things just to make it work for what I want. But uh, that is me. Well, and I think there's a good plug there for, you know, um, Kevin, you and Dan's venture is it's, it's amazing what a quick, you know, if you're paying someone who has knowledge, really solid plant knowledge to come in and do an assessment of your yard with you, you know, let's say you're spending 150 bucks or a hundred bucks for an hour. Like it's the amount of time that they could save you and the amount of pain that they could save you just by, you know, some, some key identifiers in the landscape that I know Dan and Kevin, you have from their perspective like that. It would just, it saves you so much time in the future and so much uh, pain in the future. And that comes from a guy with, from a perspective of, you know, I was always just like, let's just start working. Working. Let's just get a shovel in the ground. Let's start doing things. And, and one of the main rules in permaculture that I've learned and abused and haven't followed to my own detriment is, you know, it's typically like a thousand hours of thinking for one hour of work. You know, if you can if you can spend some money and, and hire someone like Dan or you, Don, or, or Kevin, you or myself and, and just have a quick look and a quick opinion for people who really understand, especially you three who really understand plants and microclimates and it could just save so much time and so much headache in the future. For sure. Now, I had uh, the, the regular host come up with uh, a specific question to ask Kevin E. regarding the edible scaping. I think, Dan, you had a really good one. What was your question? Yeah, when it comes to, because I haven't really got much into like permaculture design as much as I'd like to, but I was kind of thinking for when you're designing these permaculture landscapes, is there much in the way of mitigation control for wildlife that would be functional and aesthetically pleasing? Because I was just kind of thinking bigger footprint containing like fruits and veggies or like your edibles uh, that would maybe attract more wildlife or even, you know, how you're saying, and I do this too, or I have 
have done this many times. Like humans just coming by and like, oh, you got a nice raspberry bush or some Saskatoon berry bush. And, you know, people are just coming to eat. Like, have you like come across that? Like, have you kind of thought of, I mean, of course it changes from project to project, but like, is there a good eye? For sure. Yeah, no, for sure. I think um, it's something I struggled with for a while. And um, I've had projects, a couple of projects that I did in my university days in Northern Ontario. Deer, the white-tailed deer have made me look so stupid in my life by planting beautiful, beautiful gardens that they just come and it's, I just planted a snack bar for them it's and they just thing. absolutely decimated it. Yeah. yeah so, so the white-tailed deer have humbled my design uh, capabilities for sure. But one thing I did learn at the at the PC with Verge is um, one strategy, and, and sometimes it's tough. Like you can make a sacrificial bed to animals is one thing, especially if you're in a more rural context where you do have like, for example, white-tailed deer pressure. Um, you can make a bed just for them, and hopefully, kind of uh, you know, maybe you put some of the really snacky stuff out there, like some some cedar if it's a nice microclimate, and and it can grow in that context. Um, some of the one professor in in Calgary. Um, her name is Carmen Lamoureux and she, she has a intentional sacrificial bed for the white-tailed deer in her urban, in her urban residence in Calgary. And basically she invites the deer to come in and, and because she doesn't have animals or livestock on her property, obviously, because it's a typical residential house in Calgary. Um, she brings the, she brings the deer in with some snack gardens and then out of that, like her, what she gets out of that deal is they leave their nitrogen droppings and, and mm-hmm. refurbish her soil by, by snacking intentionally on her, her kale plants and something like that. And, and I asked a similar question to her down and she, she said that um, in her plant guilds, she calls uh, like in permaculture, you know, you can design in plant guilds where you have it, like we were speaking to earlier, you have some taproot species that are bringing up more mineral nutrients from, from the depths. And then you have some nitrogen fixing plants in there. Um, so like, let's say you have an, an edible plant guild, but maybe only 60% of the plants in there are actually edible. The other ones are in there just to complement um, and bring nutrients to those edible, edible uh, uh, plants. So, so she, one trick that she used for, uh, she had her sacrificial bed for the, for the deer where they intentionally came in. And then she had another bed where she stacked some, uh, like at the edge of the garden, she stacked some really fragrant native plants. And I can't remember what they were, but I'll, I'll reach out to her and ask, but she planted some really, really fragrant, uh, kind of ground covers and we'll, and we'll say like mid-sized herbaceous perennials. And it kept the, it did such a good job tricking the, the bunnies uh, and the rabbits, their, their sensory system that it, it just tricked them into thinking that there wasn't what, like the, the food that they wanted was right behind those really fragrant perennials. But then she kind of created this border around the edge of, uh, you know, of like trickster plants kind of to keep the bunnies from the middle of the garden. Cause they just, you know, they would be overwhelmed by the smell of a certain perennial and then they wouldn't even go into the middle of the bed to, to snack on her, like, you know, her kale or her lettuces or anything like that but the one thing that we got to remember i think is like especially when we're working in nature is like nature has mother nature has a bigger budget and she's got more time than all of us so pest pressure is is gonna happen and the more the closer we can get to like uh like in permaculture the closer we can get to a, a complete ecosystem which is very difficult to do on an urban scale the closer you can get to that the more like biodiversity and resistance you'll have to that pest pressure like the you know the the deer for example are going to eat animals are going to eat whatever they want to eat most and they're going to eat whatever is easiest and safest for them to access so yeah and a short answer i'd say if you have the space some sacrifice if you have the space and you have some deer pressure for example or some pest pressure some sacrificial beds are going to go a long way and they'll, they'll keep you out of what you want but i mean some people have, have trouble 
spending a couple hundred bucks throwing away, you know, certain plants to just to keep the deer fed. But if it keeps them out of the rest of your garden, it might help. So yeah, maybe I don't know how helpful that was, but uh, oh, oh yeah. nice, no, that I think that <laughs> really uh, gave me. Yeah, a lot what, of- what Carmen taught me about like that that like really aromatic border around a garden like that's something i think that you know, especially collaborating with you and, and your guys's team on on what native plants you can have that are really really fragrant and you know you're talking about the hyssop earlier um you know maybe those are some those are some options to do as border plants to keep some of those smaller critters out and and as it comes to geese like i know with with geese in urban settings maybe it's not as much to edible landscaping but geese geese like to hang out on the nice mowed lawns that human like to hang out humans like to hang out well, on they as well. love so, gra- yeah. fresh oh, yeah. grass. but then yes. when you have you know large park for example when you have those taller um taller grassland species and wetland species that make it seem a little like when geese can't see the edge of the water they, they get a like little it. bit squirrely and then they don't like to hang out there because they think and rightfully so there could be something lurking in the weeds or in the grasses so there's small tricks to play uh on animals but i've been burned so many times by mother nature and, and by white-tailed deer that uh well and uh, again it's the whole learn learning how your individual group specific to that area works because they, they can vary from place to place and also like you say um things that may have multi multiple functions that aren't necessarily edible for humans themselves like the fragrant thing it can go two ways it could actually be an animal repellent plant as well as it could disguise the smell of something that they really would like to eat so yeah absolutely but uh yeah no very good points for sure and good question so now uh, i'm gonna go back to kevin why you're not getting out of this what what question (laughs) did you come up with (laughs) okay dan's question was way too good anything i'm going to ask i'm going to sound very uneducated but (laughs) i'm gonna try here Okay, so um, with the urban landscaping, you know, there's uh, limited space for people to use. So what's your opinion on raised beds compared to just plant in the ground? I'm a big fan of raised beds, especially in urban settings. They're space savers. Or, uh, I just, I'm just a big fan of, of raised beds, for, especially for people wanting to age in their home. You know, watching my parents get a little bit older and, and my mom was a really avid gardener and now she has some mobility issues and, and we don't have raised beds at, uh, at my childhood home or her home. Like she always did everything in the ground and now she has some limitations. She can't access as, as much of the garden as she wants to and it's kind of... Um, you know, it's kind of sad to see. So I wish we would have done some some raised beds in the past uh, just to kind of help her age in her home, for example. But uh, especially where space is tight and where you want to make maybe a cleaner look of the garden. Uh, I'm a big fan of raised beds. And, and obviously the only thing that you got to remember is they're going to dry out way quicker than anything that's that's in the ground. So it's just, you know, as long as you can keep the watering, an eye on the watering, I'm a big fan of raised beds. And then for me, just anything that's uh, perennial or, or like a shrub, anything like that, um, like an edible shrub something like that obviously i would put that in the ground first and let uh, the benefits of nature do its thing but for any of my vegetable gardens or or annuals or even some like herbaceous perennials i'm a big big fan of raised bed okay second part of my question so lots of people they care about like the space with the limited limited space they'll be like oh we want the edible stuff and we also want other perennial native stuff when you are doing the actual designing of the edible landscape do you have like an intention to put the edible stuff with the 
other native species that's not edible, or like how does that work? Yeah, I'd say it all depends on depends on like the client and and depends on who depends on the needs and the wants really of the of the client. Like for some clients that are really open minded, you know, raspberry bushes, for example, Saskatoons, they they can provide a really good hedge. They can they can be an, a, an interesting substitution, for example, to uh, and currants as well. They can be a really good substitution for uh, you know for fence or to delineate space. Um, that's where those can be used. But, uh, but I, since the permaculture design course, since I, I learned a lot there, like I'm really investigating these plant guilds where it's like, you're, you're, you're investigating all these different kind of symbiotic, uh, relationships between plants, or maybe, you know, you're, you have the intention of having this, this bed that is for the most part edible, but then you have these other native plants within their ground covers or smaller, medium sized plants that, that serve a different purpose. So that's what I'm starting to get into a little bit more in my design is, is it use to be clustering your Saskatoons together and then you have your little forage area or you cluster your berries together and you have your little forage area but now having an understanding of how plant guilds can really reduce maintenance and like Don was saying reduce your water inputs reduce your yeah reduce your nutrient demands or how much fertilizer you have to put on your plants like I think I think investigating these plant guilds where you're sacrificing some space to things that aren't edibles for the betterment of your edible garden yeah, so it's like it's like companion planting and and exactly, working yeah, the exactly. whole system instead of one piece of it. Sure, awesome. But it's tough. Like in like in all reality, like in urban spaces, it's tough. Like I I do I do love the backyard, the back alley moves of people just planting you know these bigger bigger sh- edible shrubs like raspberries or like uh, or like Saskatoons in there in the in the back alleys just because they do take up a lot of space. But but having them around is really fantastic from an edible landscaping perspective. But it's tough in the urban environment, definitely. And and there's always ways around it. Especially Especially to make to use space more creatively, it just typically involves a little bit more hardscaping, and it typically involves a little bit more cost. But it's possible; everything is possible. Yeah, and actually, that brings me to uh, one of my questions. I guess I just got to figure out how to word it. Um, obviously, if you have the space in a rural setting, like you say, it's a little bit easier to work with. You've got more flexibility. But in urban areas, there's more challenges. How do you, what do you feel the, the bylaws and the, uh, I guess the bureaucracy part of it, if that's detrimental a lot of times to uh, not just edible scaping, but landscaping, planting of any kind in the urban areas? Do you think, do you think what they're doing has a purpose and makes sense? Or do you think things need to change that way? Or on a, on a private property, perspective i think it's like my understanding is you have a pretty good amount of freedom and you can kind of grow whatever you choose i would i would say that one opportunity in rural areas is or sorry not rural areas in urban areas is uh taking advantage of your eaves troughs and taking advantage of your downspouts and then wherever that water is kind of coming uh, wherever you kind of want to have an edible garden, like we know our, our berry bushes and our, and our apple trees, our pear trees, or some of our fruit trees that can thrive here in our climate, uh, they're really water demanding. So if you can get your eaves going into your kind of food forest or your like berry edible berry bush or where your apple tree is, like if you can be creative with with watering in that regard, you know, direct your eaves troughs into, into that general area and then you're your berry bushes and your and your fruit trees are going to thrive. But to your point on like the bylaws and stuff, Don, something that is a little bit frustrating to me is more on like the the public side, like the city of Edmonton yeah. spaces. The well, I was I was like thinking that. more yeah. of like uh, like what you're doing with the community gardens, um, yeah. shared CSAs, uh, exactly. that kind of thing, but within city. And also the fact that it's, uh, to me anyway, it seems really frustrating that there's a lot of vacant land 
that Mm -hmm. we know is going to take so many years to get developed. Mm -hmm. I realize you can't just pick up and move everything once you've planted. And so you you need to make sure you're planning at least a season or so ahead. I figure, can't there be a way that we can build relationships with developers and and builders and that kind of thing so that um, more of these community gardens and things can go up on these vacant lots and with the agreement that, yes, we'll move to another location once you go to develop. And then for the developer, it's a win win because now they're not having to weed control. They're not having transients come through and ransack their property or whatever, right? I'm even looking at this, again, probably another episode for some of these self-contained growing pods like these reconditioned sea cans and that kind of thing. They could just be dropped anywhere on these lots. People can grow vast volumes of food. You can tie into an existing power grid or set them up to be self-sufficient with solar or, or whatever and then mm-hmm. get moved so that when you know the land's going to be utilized you move somewhere else but i don't know but yeah i don't know what you think about um yeah i'd say like i think yeah, there's some great ideas there and and i'll, I'll just touch back on like that bylaw thing because one of my frustrations with the city of edmonton is that like like maintenance in, in the landscape world is maintenance landscape maintenance rules what is possible so there's a lot of times that um i was even working on a project in in the river valley actually it's you know it's the lrt project back in the in my old job uh, with a different firm i was doing planting plans for the the valley line and in the river valley area i put as many native edibles as i could thinking not only is that good for wildlife but it's maybe good for some um free foraging for for people who uh, who might be in need you know so um but then the city the city's maintenance staff came back and and everyone's worried about wasps mm-hmm. and it's so so uh, there's a lot of pushback from uh city of edmonton maintenance on how many you know on planting you can't just plant a bunch of apple trees as many as you want and think it's going to work um yeah. because there's pushback there's push pushback on from them on like well what happens when this is you know a yeah full it's apple like tree it's, that's it's producing. like the liability aspect has become so uh it's, yeah it's so ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, that that now it's your hands are tied that you, you can't do anything. Like I said, we're expected to live in a bubble pretty much, right? Like I, exactly. I was frustrated too with this is a, a quite the ironic um, situation. So they planted native food trees and things along certain areas that are obviously for people, like you said, to go along and conveniently pick up a snack on the way or whatever and start these food forests and that kind of thing. But the flip side is they've turned around and they've made a bylaw that you cannot collect any native plant material from the river valley. So that includes seeds. It includes the twigs the bark the leaves the anything and so it's i understand that the basis for it was originally because people are over harvesting and they want right. to have, have the wild uh, the natives be sustainable i get yeah. that but at the same time um like especially some of these projects that i'm working on i'm supposed to make sure i'm growing from the plant material in those specific areas for various reasons like the diversity and the yeah. the unique uh, Which is that impossible for you because of the rules. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so I've been trying for over a year now to get a permit so that I can get a special allowance for me to go and collect so that I can actually propagate and help promote these plants. And no, I'm not 100%. trying to decimate them, right? And you can't even do that. So then I sit there going, okay, so for these other people that all they're wanting to do is collect, a, you know, some berries or whatever, like you're talking about, and they can't do it. It's like, you know, that I can see why that would get people a little bit irate. So there's got to be a way to change this, what I call the old boys club. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, get people to, there's got to be a happy medium, I think, somehow, right? Well, I agree. And I, and I do get where the city's coming from because I'm sure that like the why of all these bylaws is always most important to me. Yeah. It's like the why of the rule. So, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm sure that rule was put in place so people aren't taking like going and digging out a Saskatoon from the river valley or going and like over harvesting or, or like taking physically taking a bunch of plants out of the river valley. But then to your point, like the pendulum's kind of swung so far in an overcorrection that now like, you have to wait a year to get a permit to go and, and take some cuttings. And, and there's days, you know, a lot of people are in, are starting to roll into this ask for forgiveness more so than ask for permission, yes. realm, which is a dangerous realm to get into. But, yep. and then to your, to your earlier question, Don, about, or your earlier comment about like some of this vacant land, these urban pieces of, of vacant land that could have a lot more benefit to communities than just you know being a haven for either invasive weeds or i don't even like that term invasive weeds anymore but a haven for pioneer species and or or a haven you know or still a requirement for the city to maintain and that's what we're trying to do with this sprout organization is try to connect we recognize that not to be a downer but i think our economy is going to be people are going to be struggling coming out of this when we're out of, whenever the this covid yeah, thing ends and i, I think uh, <laughs> yeah and so i, I think like connecting people to to their own food systems and 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 the the first question is like well i don't have land how do i start a garden and it's like well it's it's amazing how much kind of leftover parcels the city of edmonton has in their inventory and i think you brought up a great point with some of these developers um they're sitting on in some of these newer neighborhoods if they're sitting on some parcels that aren't going anywhere i think it would be great if you could connect some families or some community groups to to go and do exactly what you said like you can harvest and take care of that land and and essentially be the maintenance crew on there while you're gardening the kicker is that i mean one day with the developer angle the kicker is one day the developer is going to be like they bought that land not for people to garden on it for free they bought that land as an investment to make money off of so eventually you know you can have a really amazingly established garden with like some fruit trees that are established and stuff and they can all get ripped up but The city of Edmonton has a lot of really weird leftover parcels in their inventory. And I think that's an opportunity that I want to explore. And maybe, you know, we can explore this in a, in a different podcast or something like that. But but connect with some individuals who, uh, you know, these lands aren't big enough to be to be sold off for development. They're not big enough to be or, or, or they have some sort of like servicing limitations where they can't really be There's much more than a grass field or valuable in another capacity so yeah, yeah exactly so opening uh, my thing like opening those spaces up to community groups to farm especially in in our um, you know in our mature neighborhoods and in our inner cities like if we can take those pieces of land take it off of the city create a win-win the city wins because it's no longer in their maintenance scope the community wins because they finally have that land that they didn't have access to 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 plant and feed themselves and then yeah and then the broader community wins because it's more eyes on the street more eyes on the parcel it's just a safe space if people are engaged in it and, and want to take care of that space and right now for all we know it could just be an open lawn that the city's still having to pay someone to to mow twice a month and it's it's a useless parcel so i think there's there's always um there's always opportunities and i think that some of these leftover pieces that the city has in their inventory that they can't really sell for development i think there's an opportunity there to connect you know with some community groups to get some gardens growing and get our, our food system a little bit more decentralized. Yeah. And it also uh, reminds me of um, one of our green scene features that we did. There was an article about going up the green roofs and that kind of thing. There's a lot of roof space as well, especially like commercial roof space that's Definitely. underutilized. So either get your solar panels and things up there or turn it into gardens as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, I think it's it's great that we live in a country that has a lot of vastness and wild areas and everything still left. But I also, on the other hand, wonder if it causes us to be a little more lackadaisical and wasteful because we just figure, oh, there's there's lots of it out here. I mean, there's there's lots of space that's being, like you say, underutilized and we can manage it a lot better, I think. So hopefully a podcast and, and conversations like this will get people to think and maybe start taking action in larger groups to uh, get the government organizations or the powers that be to take notice um, instead of just one person kind of griping about it so that that we can hopefully make some change. And I think it's about creating win-wins, like not going to the city as though there's some enemy, like obviously there, I have some issues with certain bylaws and and reasons why, and, and, you know, we're kind of, some of these, some of these rules are put in place because of the, you know, to the most limiting factor, like no one just wants to get sued because a wasp bit a kid, for example. And that's why we can't have any apple trees in a certain area. Like it's a little bit of an overcorrection, but, um, but the city's not the enemy. And I think it's, it's on, it's on um, people and, and creators like yourselves to, for us to get creative and um, find win-wins for the city. And, and an example of, of a win-win, like a local example is, and there's this company called Prairie North Cidery. And so these guys go around oh, yeah. the city of Edmonton. Yeah, I'm sure we've heard of them. They go around the city of Edmonton and they, they pick all these mature apple trees. People are very happy to let them come in and, and pick their apple trees because a mature apple tree, as we all know, has an amazing Way more apples than one person yeah. can use. Yeah. Yeah. So they, and they go around and they turn it into cider and they're, so they're making money off of free apples. They're dealing with the wasp problem. They're dealing with like, you know, helping people harvest their own, um, harvest like the abundance that comes off of their trees and, and they're, they're being creative and, and making money off of free apples. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's the kind of creativity I think um, kind of excites me about the next generation too, is there's some outside of the box thinkers that are really interested in, um, in creating these win-wins and, you know, this Prairie North Cidery is, is probably selling an amazing local cider that they're getting for, you know, sweat equity because they, they're creative enough to find a win-win and, and picking people's apples that are otherwise just going to go to waste. So it's, there's, there's tons of opportunity to your point, Don, there's tons of opportunity out there for people to, to get creative and, um, you know, yeah, start you, ourselves. you just have to be innovative and again, not see everybody else as the enemy, but learn how to work with the, the world around you. And like you say, make it a, a win-win for everybody. Um, but yeah, so that brings me to kind of to wrap things up. Basically, the I guess what we're the big take we're getting out of this is edible scaping is a great thing to do because now, especially on a permaculture level, now you're getting closer to that regenerative landscape. And you're also providing food for yourselves and for hopefully your your nature neighbors as well. Um, and the greater the number of these techniques that you can apply in an area, uh, especially the, the larger the area, of course, the easier it is, the closer to a complete regenerative landscape you will get. So like imagine a fish tank. The smaller the fish tank, the more you got to change the water, balance the pH and, and uh-huh. do all this stuff, right? But the bigger the fish tank, suddenly it starts to balance itself and you're not having to do things. It's, cl- it's kind of cleaning itself, taking care of it itself a little bit more. So think of it like that. But that being said, it doesn't matter how small of a space that you have, you can still do a bit of edible scaping, whether it's going vertical or doing container gardening or whatever. And if you are a ginormous, you know, farmland farmer, you don't have to be stuck in that traditional mindset either. There's lots of things you can do like the food forest strips or the the prairie strips that will benefit uh, your areas as well. But regardless, I think all of us here can say we want to encourage people to get out, do some gardening, do some edible scaping, do some native scaping, try to do more to help 
the landscape regenerate, definitely consult with Kevin E or Kevin Y and Dan or myself if you're looking at getting an area that you've got edible scaped. If you're feeling it's overwhelming, because by all means, there's a lot of uh, a vast amount of knowledge between all of us. And uh, we can definitely help you get started on your way. And it can be very rewarding to grow your own fresh, natural, local food, even if you're not going to be providing your whole diet with it, even if it's just an add-on. Yeah, for sure. Everybody get out there. And oh, um, I also wanted to go over to with Kevin E. If people want to get a hold of this Sprouts Community Garden group, what's the spiel? Where can they go? Right yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. And uh, and maybe we can have a chat with, because uh, I'm collaborating with two of my friends uh, from Prairie Urban Farm. So yeah, Don, you've been out there before. And because of COVID, we don't know if that garden's going exist anymore because of all the rules and regulations and it's all the, under the um, university's mandate there so we don't know what's going to happen with that garden so so myself and and two other members we just were proactive and started uh, started sprout just to help people connect to exactly that connect to the landscape connect to some some gardens and um, and Don you saw what kind of w- went on there at Prairie Urban Farm so you see what what an acre and a half of planted garden. Like there's so much abundance there. It's incredible. Doesn't so, take um, much to do a lot of good. That's for sure. Doesn't take much. Absolutely. Like it's uh, all you need is some, some good people around you, just a handful of good people uh, who are motivated and, uh, and consistent and you can, you can feed a lot of people, which is, which is truly amazing. So yeah, we just launched um, Sprout Yeg. So on Instagram, we're at Sprout Yeg, Y-E-G. And then we're SproutYeg.com is our website. And uh, yeah, Mandy McRae, she's leading a really great team. Um, I'm one of the advisors to kind of, you know, help start. The, I'd say I'd say my expertise or my what I bring to the team is, is more of the uh, the garden infrastructure, like what you need to get going to, mm-hmm. to build your garden, like from to complete that whole garden cycle, like from your compost and waste systems to your uh, you know how to build the paths properly how to how to um, you know build some garden sheds what infrastructure you would need to get going what the costs would be and, and maybe what some of the plants um, you would need to start and then obviously you know I have some some amazing local growers like uh, like you Don that I can bring people to to start their native plant gardens but yes bro we're just trying to connect people to food we realize that uh, our grocery stores here in Edmonton every a lot of stuff is from California and uh, and if we're gonna get out of this, we're gonna get out of this kind of ec- economic nightmare. Um, realizing that we can grow a lot of our own food here in Edmonton, even though it's you know minus forty. Yeah, well, there's nothing to you know. There's like I say, being innovative. Um, there's Absolutely. a good portion of the yeah. season that we can provide more locally, uh, so self-sufficiently, and then even in those off seasons, the the greenhouse growers locally. Please go out and support them rather than going and getting something that's coming from Mexico or the United States. Yeah. Or Easy to go to Home Depot, but you're just going to get a bunch of junk. And if they go in and get some, like we've used your product, um, Dawn, with our, our regenerative farmer that we've worked with uh, just south of Sylvan Lake. And, and that plant stock is is just doing fantastic already. So, um, yeah, if you can, if for anyone who wants to find plant sources, I would say, and, or even any advice, like I would reach out to, to Dan and Kevin Yu for some, uh, for some one-on-one consultation on starting their landscapes or starting their gardens and that plant knowledge. Go to you, Dawn, for any of the, if they want to start any native plants or native edible gardens. And, and if anyone wants to think about starting a community garden or get a group of people together that want to produce their own food, yeah, the team at Sprout, Mandy, Heather, and myself, we are uh, motivated to connect people to vegetables. So 
And, and yes, it is all about connection. So for our listeners out there, maybe you have a piece of unused land. Maybe you have two good hands to uh, do some labor. Maybe you've got um, some organizational skills. Uh, I think pretty much anything that you could think of that remotely relates to the natural foods and the, and the gardening uh, could definitely be well utilized by a group like this. So don't be shy. Give them a, a call, a contact, and I'm sure there's a place for you. So on that note, thanks everybody for tuning in for this episode. We'll be back as always with another one for next week. We've got so many topics to cover. Like we just barely touched the surface and, and we could be talking till the end of the world pretty much about all this stuff. We're having a great time doing it and uh, we thank all of our listeners for checking it out. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is great. So I appreciate uh, (laughs) I can be long-winded when it comes to plants, that's for sure.